Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to For What It's Worth podcast. I am uh, actively working to try to keep this podcast alive and keep it going, and it's, um, it's a challenge. I've got a lot on my plate, a lot of stuff happening. It was about a balmy 18 degrees here this morning in Santa Fe. It's a bit, a bit chilly. I had to wait for my wife to leave before I could start this recording because otherwise I would have to start and stop again and again and again. So here we are. If you're new to the podcast, I start this out with a suggestion as to who this podcast is for, who it's aimed at. Then we talk a little bit about heroes of the week, and we talk a little bit about goats of the week. And I don't mean goat as in greatest of all time, goat as in ass or someone who's just out there working above and beyond to hurt the rest of us or just act selfishly or idiotic. And thankfully, we have a lot of choices when it comes to the goat of the week. But let's say, who is this for? I think if you're out there, if anyone out there purposely got suspended after watching The Breakfast Club because you thought it would be a great idea to try to reinvent that movie in real time, in real life, then I think this podcast is for you. If you purposely got suspended after watching The Breakfast Club, now, my favorite character in The Breakfast Club was Judd Nelson, and he was sort of the head, is what we would have called the head when we were in school. I don't know what those kids are called now. They probably don't even exist. Everyone's probably just hermetically sealed and um, staring at their phone, and they all probably look and dress exactly the same. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but he was the head. He was the outlaw, and uh, that's who I wanted to be of all those characters. And uh, I was never actually him, but I did meet him years later in Los Angeles. I had an assignment to photograph some weird fashion show in L.A. where celebrities were body painting nude models. Yes, you heard that correctly. That was an official assignment of mine. Celebrities body painting nude models. And I was standing in a parking garage waiting to go into the event, and I looked over, and a vintage cop car pulled into the parking garage of the event. A vintage, I would say probably either 1950s or 1960s cop car that had been souped up and out emerged Judd Nelson. And he was actually nice, cool. In fact, I have silver prints of Judd Nelson body painting these models. Yes, I do, somewhere. Uh, All right. Uh, Okay, this podcast is also, for anyone who is vehemently anti-gun and yet plays first-person shooter games all night long, this is a, a phenomenon that I have discovered now over and over and over again. The anti, very vocal anti-gun people who either own guns and lie about it in public, but in private they'll say, oh yeah, here's my thing. That's a, that's a pretty common group of people. Vehemently, vocally anti-gun, yet they are gun owners. And um, the other ones are the ones who play first-person shooter games all the time and don't see the irony in that. Or they let their kids play first-person shooter games and don't see the irony in that. So that's who this podcast is for. If that makes sense to you, if being vehemently vocally anti-gun and yet supporting first-person shooter games, uh, I think this podcast is for you. And lastly, anyone who sees eggnog as the sixth and most important food group. Because eggnog is transcendent. And it does not matter what flavor, leaded, unleaded, premium, it does not matter. All and any eggnog is worth consuming. Soy, almond, oat, regular, cinnamon, doesn't matter. This stuff is transcendent. It's, there's nothing, nothing quenches your thirst better on a hot day than a big glass of eggnog, preferably room temperature. Okay, that's who this podcast is for. The hero of the week. Now, this is going back a while. So some of these are from weeks ago, but I'm going to include them here this week because it's my podcast and I can do what I want. The first is the company Lush, who quit Facebook and Instagram after yet another scandal, people. Yes, once again, Facebook doing what they said they're not doing, Facebook being less than, less than forthcoming with the truth, and this company said, enough is enough, and they quit Facebook and Instagram. Now, you might be saying, whoop-de-doo, whoop-de-frickin'-doo, Milner, who cares? Well, they lost 10 million pounds by doing so. And guess what? They did it anyway. That's what it takes, people. That's just one in a 
tide of people swimming in the wrong direction, one person turned around and said, why am I doing this? Why are we still playing along with this? When you see those creepy, creepy films about meta and the metaverse and why more people are not saying, dude, I got to get away from this guy and this craziness. But no, because the physical addiction has taken over. So Lush, way to go for doing that. Also, Hero of the Week, Al Unser Sr. For a kid who was born in Indiana, I lived in Indiana until I was in fourth grade. The Indy 500 was a huge deal. Like this was back pre-internet, obviously. Uh, pre-18 million other things to do. When the Indy 500 rolled around and you were living in Indiana, everything stopped. Everything stopped. Families gathered at barbecues to watch the Indy 500. It was a really big deal. And Al Unser Sr., who went on to spawn Al Unser Jr., who also was a pretty magical race car driver. But Al Unser Sr. was a name that, growing up in Indiana, Larry Bird, Al Unser Sr., these guys were front and center every single day. The hick from French Lick, Larry Bird, with this super sexy, slicky jump shot where he never really left the ground. Um, and Al Unser Sr. And Al Unser Sr. died a couple of weeks ago. And I had not heard that name in a long, long time, but he's my hero. And finally, Marc-Andre Leclerc. And if you haven't seen The Alpinist on Netflix, it's worth, uh, worth doing. Sadly, he is no longer with us. But if you have seen the movie The Alpinist on Netflix, you will know what this kid was up to. And um, he was unique, I guess you could say. Awkward, unique. Um, was doing things in the mountains that simply no one else had ever done on a scale that no one else had ever done. And you just kind of knew going in that it was not going to last. But what he did and how he did it was a pretty interesting story. So if you don't know about Marc-Andre Leclerc, then I think it's worth watching The Alpinist, even if you're not into climbing mountains or doing any of that stuff. Okay, let's talk about the goat of the week. These are the asses who have just really gone out of their way to, to be spectacularly selfish, greedy, dumb. You know, you know what I'm talking about. And the first is, is uh, Omicron. Let's just go after this variant, which is causing uh, quite a bit of trouble here. And uh, I was going to talk a little bit about COVID later. Um, we are a long way from this being over. And man, again, we are lettering in stupidity in this country. I'm just going to talk about America. Even though Europe looks like it's going back into lockdown, Asia, it's a mess everywhere. Thailand this morning is saying that they're thinking about... Um, Going back into some sort of uh, lockdown, you've got most of the European countries, Scandinavian countries, everyone's in, in damage control now trying to stop this thing. And in here in America, we can't go back into lockdown because we have a radicalized population that will get violent at the drop of a hat because we want to express our stupidity at a level that's really impressive to see. And this is happening all around. I have friends now who are purposely doing stupid, risky things because they're triple vaxxed and they're frustrated because they can't get their lifestyle back. And they are saying, I'm going to get it anyway. It's inevitable. And so they're going out now and purposely doing stupid stuff, thinking in a way that they're going to, they, they want to get it so that they get over it and then get selfishly get back to their life. Now, these people are not thinking about anyone around them. They're not thinking about the people that they can then potentially infect or the healthcare workers if they end up in the healthcare system. And so they don't care. And lifestyle, greed, apathy, and also entitlement here in the country. So Omicron has definitely got, got its handle on us, and uh, we're just beginning. So everyone be cool out there and relax, and just know that we're a long way away. And also get ready for COVID-21 and COVID-23 and COVID-27 and the rest of them, because they ain't going away. And one of those is going to be way nastier than what we have now. Okay, the next go to the week are evangelicals who mix hate with Bible quotes. Have you seen this phenomenon where these, most of them are from, coming from the right-wing side of the uh, Republican Party now, but they'll, they'll go on Twitter and drop a Bible quote, and then five minutes later drop some anti-Semitic trope um, like Trump did last week. Holy cow, that rant about Israel and Jews was absolutely unhinged at the utmost level, and it's just now commonplace. It didn't even really get a lot of coverage of what Trump said, and man, you can break down that inter that interview that he did, and it is, st one, it's just beyond ignorant. Like one of the dumbest, most uninformed speeches you're ever going to see, but it also happens to be dead center anti-Semitic 
uh, just one sentence after another, and no one batted an eye. It didn't even really get coverage, and so that's kind of where we're at with uh, with that. But I, the, the evangelicals, man, they got some explaining to do. Um, let's also throw in here Chris Cuomo. Man, not a good story. And this speaks to something I've said for decades, which is you cannot be a celebrity and be a, a quote-unquote journalist. Now, I don't consider Chris Cuomo, um, the CNN heads, you know, these people who are the, the mouthpieces for the network, really any network like that. Most of these people are not journalists at all. They're celebrities, and that's a problem. Because these guys are celebrities, they're catered to, they have positions of power, and they take advantage of it. And there is a massive amount of ego. These people are so egotistical. This is across the board. This isn't just heads of of CNN and networks like this that are egotistical. This is journalism in general. If you've ever met an AME or somebody from a paper, a big paper, whether it's the New York Times or Washington Post, these journalists have egos like you cannot freaking believe. And it transcends all the way down to the photographers who can be nice people, and they can also be horrible, vile, egotistical, insecure, hypocritical individuals on a scale that means when you're around them and you see this kind of behavior, you realize they don't really have any friends because if they did, their friends would say, look, you're being a, you're being a jerk, and they don't. And so journalism is a weird thing where there's a ton of competition, ton of ego, and Cuomo, yeah, good riddance. I don't think um, CNN's going to be hurting by cutting him loose. They, I think they did the right thing. Um, and also, let's just throw under the Manhattan District Attorney here. Let's throw them under the boat for go to the week because they don't have any teeth. They just don't have any teeth to do anything to anyone. And there's a lot of bluster and a lot of news stories and nothing happens to anyone. And crime pays. I don't know if you've if you've paid attention to this of late. Take the guy who was caught stolen, uh, selling stolen antiquities. This guy did this for decades. He bought stolen antiquities from all over the world, no- knowing they were stolen and guess what his charges were? Zero. He got off scot-free, no charges. That's the Manhattan district attorney that everyone is putting their faith in to like do justice here with the January 6th committee. And also for uh, you know Trump's and his individual business holdings in the city, everyone's saying, oh, you know, the federal charges are no big deal, but the state of New York is going after him. The odds of something actually happening to him are almost zero because our system just doesn't have any teeth anymore. There's no watchdog. There's no department that's the final line in the sand that says, oh, you've, you, you committed a crime, you're going to jail. That's done. If you are wealthy, you can basically do whatever you want to do. So I guess the go to the week could be our, our system in place. But hey, that's where we are. Uh, my nose is running. Deal with it. And I'm also drinking a smoothie, so I'm going to be smacking my lips this entire time, Uh, but it's worth it because my smoothie is better than you. And uh, the last film that I'm put out, so in the past couple of days, this, before I get to the points here that we start this, we start this whole thing, this, um, someone made a comment to me a couple of days ago where I had like one moment of downtime doing something. I was like going on a walk or something and someone said, oh, must be nice. Like this happens all the time with photographers who reach out to me. Oh, must be nice. Your life must be so easy and so nice, right? These backhanded comments where they're frustrated, they can't get assignments, or their assignments suck, or the budgets suck, or the timelines suck, or everything sucks, and they're miserable, and they don't want to be photographers anymore, but they're kind of stuck in that career. And so they come to me, and they go, they'll say things like, you're so lucky that you got your job at Blurb. And I'm like, luck had nothing to do with it. I was an early adopter of these, this technology. I was printing, doing print-on-demand stuff and making my own books back in the early 90s. And I'm like, when's the first time you made a book? Oh, you've never made one. Oh, okay, that's interesting. So I've heard that comment probably a thousand times over the last 11 years. You're so lucky to have your job. Um, not really. It had nothing to do with luck. It had everything to do with being an early adopter and taking control of my own work in a way that I thought was most appropriate for me, which was self-publishing my own books and magazines. Whereas the vast majority of photographers were too, let's, let's face it, egotistical and insecure, and they thought that having a publisher was critical, and consequently they would get themselves into horrible financial deals trying to get book deals. It's still happening. It happens every day of every week, and I hear these stories all the time. 10, 20, 30, 40, $50,000 up front to get a book that ends up not being what they want. No marketing, no distribution. Luck has nothing to do with me getting this job. 
And when this person said to me, it was yesterday, I think, they were like, which is a Sunday, by the way, and they were like, oh, you're so lucky that you get to do that. And I was thinking to myself, like what I've done in the last 48 hours, I did four films, five blog posts, two interviews, and a podcast. And that's on my weekend. And so I think if you want to do this stuff, one, you have to realize that the haters out there, the internet has allowed haters to just have a platform constantly anywhere. And a lot of times it's people that you may know that'll take backhanded shots at you for one reason or another. But if you're going to do this stuff, I think you have to work at a level that um, most people are not prepared to work, work at. They just kind of go, well, I don't want to do that. I just want to. It's like the COVID thing. It's like people said, well, I want my lifestyle back. So I don't really care what the rules are now because I'm tired of doing this and I just want my lifestyle back. And I think working as a creative is along those same lines where you just have to go, look, if you're not self-motivated, if you don't have your own setting your own deadlines, setting your own goals, making lists, doing all these things, it's going to be really rocky and rough to do this. But frankly, I don't know why you'd want to work as a creative professional anyway. I think it's better to be an amateur at this point. Okay, point number one. 15 minutes in, 16 minutes in, we're just now getting to point number one because I'm rambling. I did have my coffee earlier, which could explain some things. And I've got a bowl of vitamins in front of me that I've waited, I held off on because I didn't want to go too far here. Point number one is about a camera update. I came to a realization a couple of days ago. So I, a full disclosure, I have been lurking on the Leica site for the past couple of weeks. Now, I was brought to the Leica site through a birding book, B-I-R-D-I-N-G, birding, not bird watching people, damn it, birding. A birding book brought me to the Leica site. And I didn't really think about Leica as, a, as an optical, you know, like a binocular company, but evidently they are. And so I was lurking on there and then I sort of, you know, lurked over onto the camera side. And I was like, you know, I do have two Leicas. I have two film Leicas, but I rarely ever use them anymore. And I can't see that changing anytime soon. And I was like, oh, I got these lenses. I'm so used to this camera system. Maybe I'll just get a Leica, digital Leica of some sort. I've never had one. I had one on loan for Leica years ago. Did not like it. It was the M9, I think. Very limited camera, in my opinion. I didn't really like that camera. Um, gave it back without, uh, without any kind of sadness. Uh, but now the cameras are obviously way better. And then I took a look at the price tag on them. And I was like, oh my God, you know, this is, these prices are just insane. Now, I, if I was like, I'd be doing the same thing because you can, they can get away with it because people are paying those prices. But I was like, I really don't want to do that. And the third thing is also I'm using two camera systems right now, Sony and Fuji for the most part. But even that's a little bizarre because um, you've got to juggle like, which one am I going to use when and why that kind of thing. And so it complicates things. And when you're complicating, you're basically holding yourself back. Because if you're thinking about your camera gear, you're not really thinking about what you should be thinking about if you're just trying to make pictures. So the camera system that I have the most equipment is Fuji. And I love the Fuji cameras because, one, they're affordable. They're incredibly, they're priced very, very nicely. It's a very, you know, you look at the price tag on a new Fuji and you go, wow, that's totally doable. Um, and for stills, I've been, I've been using these cameras for years and I love them. And I've been doing some tests, sort of informal tests myself with my Sony full frame with a Leica lens and my Fuji with a Chinese-made 0.95 50mm and was really surprised how good the Fuji looked in comparison to the Sony. It wasn't that the Sony looked bad by any means, and I do still like that combo, but the Fuji was like, wow, because everyone thinks you got to have full frame. i got to have full frame, got to have full frame. But when you look at the files, you're like, no, you don't. You actually don't. And there are some serious advantages to not having full frame. And so I looked at the Fuji and I was like, you know, I have three, cam three Fuji bodies, two motor drives, six lenses. I've got neutral density filters. I've got strobes. I've got all kinds of stuff in that system. So when I thought about the Leica, I was like, you know what? I'm not doing that. I'm just going to stick with Fuji. And I'm going to, when the Fuji new stuff comes out, odds are I will get a different camera, the X-Pro4, or which is an interesting camera to me because it's probably the closest thing that Fuji makes to an old Leica. And so I thought, you know what, I'll probably just stick with this. The X-H2 looks really interesting when it's coming out. I think the video capability is going to be much better. The stabilization is going to be better. And again, these are smaller, inexpensive. And then if I ever needed to or wanted to, the GFX systems at the top of the line there with the 50 and 100 megapixel stuff, I don't really need cameras with that file size. That's just an archiving nightmare to me at this point when I think about 
if I'm using those a lot, where are you putting that, those files? And I'm not someone who throws images away. I think that's an incredibly short-sighted uh, way of looking at photography, especially if you're licensing work moving forward. That's a dead end. And so I'm sticking with Fujifilm. Now, the Sony has been great. The Sony a7C, I have two lenses, but the lenses are basically designed for the lenses that I bought anyway. I bought them 100% for video. And for video, they work great. But I have a trip coming up where I'm going to have to leave the country and I'm going to be have one small bag of equipment and I'm going to be on the move for like seven or eight days nonstop. I can't take two camera systems with me. So I'm just taking the Fuji and I'm going to use the X-T4 for my video stuff instead of the Sony. And so that's the Sony stuff has been fantastic. And if I was starting out build, if I was a professional photographer now, and I was starting out building, a, and, I, and I had no equipment, and I was starting with a system, I would probably start with Sony, because in terms of what they're making now for pros, and also the service side of it, and that's a real key that often gets lost in the shuffle that people, amateurs, don't think about when they're buying gear, is what is the service? Canon always had this thing called CPS, Canon Professional Services, and if you were a pro and a member of CPS, you could get expedited equipment repair, and you could also get loaner equipment expedited. And that was critical. Everybody used CPS. Leica, on the other hand, was horrendous. Trying to get work done at Leica on your camera equipment. I, the last time I had to do that, I sent two R Leica cameras and lenses to the company. They kept them for six months and never touched them. And I had to call random people at their New Jersey headquarters, like secretaries and anyone else, to try to get my equipment back because I couldn't get them to respond. And so... That's not a professional service side. Fuji, I don't think really is, has that network built in either. I just don't think that's their target audience. You know, they're not trying to compete with the Sonys and the Canons of the world, at least with their smaller, smaller camera systems. And the GFX, I don't know. Maybe there's a pro level of service with, with uh, the GFX stuff. I don't honestly know, and it doesn't apply to me. So frankly, I don't really care. But that's where we're at. Whatever the new Fuji is, I don't know. I might buy one just for fun and to be completely wasteful. Okay, point number two. Hang on, smoothie break. Oh, man. Mm, that was good. But, ooh, it's tart. It does make my mouth water. Alrighty. Point number two, film photography. Oh, boy, where do I start? A lot of people out there lot of lot of hucksters out there selling this film photography stuff. Now, as a photographer who grew up in the film era, this is simultaneously hilarious and also really lame. So a couple of days ago, I got an email from someone who I don't know, someone that reads my website, and they sent me a link and said, hey, you should watch this film. This is a film about film photography, and it's a young photographer. So I go, okay. And I love getting those emails because people do bring my attention to things that I would never see. And so I start watching this film, and the film has really good production quality. The photographer who's doing this knows how to tell a story with motion content, right? It's pretty simple, but there's a good soundtrack. The sound is good. The lighting is decent, and he's filming in a way that you go, okay, this kid probably went to school somewhere, art school, uh, some sort of design school, something, learned motion, and my guess is, like a lot of modern students, learned a little bit about a lot. A little about a lot. So they can do, the whole Adobe suite is in their wheelhouse. They can work with any program in the Adobe suite. After Effects, Premiere, Photoshop, Lightroom, they're, they're versed in all of those. The issue that I have is that they're not well-versed in any of those. And so I start watching this film, and I'm like, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. And when it comes to the actual photography, it is not even worth mentioning. The photography is at a level that is first class, first year photo school level of photography. It's just not good. There is no sense of vision. There is no sense of individuality. There's no sense of light, timing, and composition. Random street urban abstract landscape, you know, the, you know the, the, the guilty parties here. It's the same stuff. Mountain range at sunrise on Portra 400. If I see another one of those, good grief, people. Why is that interesting? Now, here's the funny part, is I'm watching this, and it's about a particular city. This film is about one. It's like such and such city on film. 
And so, and I've seen this Tokyo, I've seen New York, I've seen LA, I've seen San Francisco. You know, we've all seen these films of the people who are like locked in on analog photography for whatever reason, and they pick a city and they go out and they shoot the world's most boring photographs. Because they're not really engaged, they're just randomly driving around and they're not really talking to people, they're not really spending any time with anyone in particular or any one place in particular, they don't really know how to tell stories with stills, they don't have any of that kind of training. And it's just, that leaves me completely flat. So here is my, my advice to you. If you're going to sell this idea of analog photography, you have got to learn photography. That, let me repeat that. If you're going to sell making images with film as being a novel idea, which is the hilarious part, you have got to actually learn photography. You've got to work long enough and hard enough at photography, learning light timing and composition, how you see the world, to try and put an individual stamp on the photographs that you're showing. Because if you're making a film about it and your film is good, but your photos aren't, then it doesn't work. Ultimately, you're going to get a bunch of consumer geeks who are going to watch that film and like that film and tell you you're amazing because they don't know anything about photography. So what I did with the person who emailed me was I said, thank you for sending this. I think this film is actually good. The photography is not. But for this particular city, here's about 10 photographers who have been based in that city for decades who have all done film work in that city who are legitimate photographers. Start there. Start with those people. And oh, by the way, they didn't call it film photography. They just called it photography because that was the medium that we had at the time. And, the, and, that, and now they're all either shooting a combination of film and digital or they've all switched over to digital. But if you want to see actual good film photography from that city, look at these people. Because these are actually industry-based people who have jobs in photography, who work full-time as professionals, who actually know how to make good individual still photographs. And just off the top of my head, there were at least 10, there's probably, I can, if you gave me five minutes, I could come up with 30 people in that same city who are accomplished professional photographers who shot film for decades in that same city that are completely and utterly unknown in the online photo community, meaning YouTube, meaning Instagram, meaning Facebook, because they're out doing assignments and jobs and they're taking all the best jobs and the best work and they're creating all the best work and images and assignments because they are who they are, but yet they're totally unknown in the online space. And so, again, the, last, the, the point here is, if you're going to push yourself as an analog photographer, you better practice the photography part. The, those, are, those words are in the wrong order. Film photography, it should be photography that's film-based, and you better put the emphasis on photography, because otherwise we're just creating this sea of average work with packaged in these beautiful films which is, you know, if you're me, that's a total letdown. 30 seconds in, you're like, oh God, there's the first image and here we are again. Bad street, bad ab urban abstract landscape, detached work. Number three, point number three, um, riddle me this. I grew up, basically, the, my generation, if I had to choose a decade, would be the 1980s. Don't hold that against me. Miami Vice was raging and that's basically enough to carry the whole generation. But there was also another craze happening in the 1980s that's still going, and I'm absolutely baffled by it, and that is the bodybuilding. That's the bodybuilding craze. Now, in the 1980s, you had Schwarzenegger emerging. You had Lou Ferrigno as the Hulk, right? And, and Americans were just baffled. We see these guys, and we're like, holy cow. You know, look at these guys. They're freaks. And bodybuilding, you know, you had... Uh, when I think of bodybuilding, I think of a guy in a dingy apartment, eating 10 pounds of boiled chicken, wearing those puffy pants and a fanny pack. And it's kind of depressing. And in the 1980s, the whole steroid thing was still kind of an anomaly. We weren't, we weren't so savvy about the steroid thing. We knew that it wasn't natural, but everyone kind of played along with it. And, and we were dumb, dumb, just not, not refined as a nation at all. So like the movies that were coming out with Ferrigno and Schwarzenegger, you know, the script writing, you're like, oh, God, this is horrible. But we all played along and we all watched it. Commando, perfect example. Love that. Seen it a thousand times. When I was in middle school and high school, I was like, I wanted to be him. I wanted to get jacked, man. But the bodybuilding thing over time, when the whole steroid thing comes out and you're like, okay, none of this is natural. These guys are just jacked to the gills, taking monkey steroids and rhino tr tranquilizer and whatever else they can get their hands on. And you're like, okay, this is sort of worn off. But here's the thing. It's still out there. There's still 
the bodybuilding craze going on. And I think what's happened is they've dropped the facade of being a clean sport. Like everyone knows that everyone's taking, taking roids and they're like, yep, here's how I did it. And this is what I took. And here we am. But that's such a, I don't know. I find the whole thing incredibly bizarre that people going to the gym and using weights. I totally get going to the gym, using weights and jacking with steroids and getting humongous is still a thing. And I'm just wondering who out there like looks at that and says, one, I want to do that. Or two, wow, that guy's really attractive. Like that person, you know, whether it's male or female bodybuilder, I'm baffled by the whole thing. I I can't really explain why someone would still do that today because here's the thing. When you look at the people who were at the pinnacle of the sport 10 years ago, who reached their prime, passed their prime and begin the descent into post bodybuilding life, it is not pretty. Holy cow. They're batting like a thousand in terms of early death, heart failure. These guys are dropping and popping every day after those, the roids wear off, their competitive era is over. They can't walk. Their hearts are exploding. And yet people are still in there doing that. So if someone can explain this to me, or if you're in a dingy apartment eating 10 pounds of boiled chicken, wearing those puffy pants and with a fanny pack, please tell me. What is the allure of this activity? Because I'm lost. All right, point number four. Let's talk climate change. I just love throwing climate change out, that terminology, because it rankles so many people. Because we're at the point now where, we, again, we just can't, we can't believe what we're seeing in front of us. But here, here's my feeling about climate change. And I don't mean, I'm not being a pessimistic about this. I'm just trying to be realistic about this is, you know, as of a couple of days ago, they're talking about this doomsday glacier, this ice sheet that if it breaks off, sea level is going to rise by two and a half feet. South Florida is underwater, New York, London, Singapore. Um, Forget about the Maldives. They're gone, places like that. But the thing is, I don't think we have a chance to to fix climate change. Because, one, I think it's too late. I mean, if you see Carl Sagan testifying to Congress in 1985... And basically, he does it very eloquently in, in a climate in Washington that was much more civil than it is today. I'm not saying it was perfect or nice by any means, but the level of stupidity in 1985 had not come remotely close to the level of stupidity and hate that we have in, the, in our Congress today. And so Sagan gets up and he's like, look, you know, and he breaks it down to like layman's terms. Now, he's breaking it down to a panel of middle to, middle to early stage old age white men in suits who are laughing, right? And they did absolutely nothing. That whole group of people that Sagan basically testified to, and he didn't make it sound horrible. He just said, look, this is the data that we have, and this is the trend where we're going, and this we've known this for a long time, and you can see the effects here, and here's some information. And, you know, he's very, very middle-of-the-road, softball. These people are dumb. I need to keep this in the middle of the road. I can't go any into any kind of depth or detail because they're going to turn off. These are people who are taking limos to lunch and having, you know, seven cocktail lunches while they're taking junket trips to the Bahamas for their constituents kind of thing. And so if you saw 85 Sagan's testimony, and he was not the only one to do so, but a lot of folks testified. 85 was a big year. 88 was a big year. 90 was a big year. Um, And then what happens is we have these big summits, these climate summits around the world, and it's typically a bunch of wealthy politicians from various countries who talk a very, very big game leading up to these climate conferences. And then the second they get in there, it all gets watered down. All of the, the, the big tough talk rhetoric gets tossed out the window. There's always a compromise. One country throws a fit or just backs out entirely and says, I don't want to do this. And the main culprits in the world, the U.S., the China, the Russia, the, the ones who are India, who are putting out just insane amounts of coal into the air, they don't care. And I, don't, I just don't think, I think it's too late for us to shift this. I think climate is like a cruise liner. And when you cut the power on a cruise liner, it does not stop immediately. It drifts for about five miles. And if you try to turn it, good luck. It's like the Queen Mary. It's not going to do a U-turn. You're not going to like parallel park that thing at the docks very easily. That's what climate change is. So even if we cut it off, we all know that it would take a long time for the emissions to start or really to, to rebound from the positive benefits of that. But here's the reason why I think ultimately it's not, we don't have a chance. I I don't want to blame these big government big wigs and I don't want to blame massive countries in general. 
I want to blame us, you and me, because from what I see and hear of people around me, and I have friends who are very, very, very dedicated to this cause. They are hardcore dedicated to the climate change cause. They have completely changed their lifestyle. They've, they've changed what they buy, what they dress, what they drive, how they drive, when they drive, where they go, their travel restrictions, everything they've changed in an effort to try and be part of the solution and not part of the problem. And I sort of commend them for that. And I, you can see some of the things that they're doing would have an effect and others aren't, but they're, they're still doing it anyway. And that's kind of a commendable thing where you go, okay, you're at least making a commitment to be, to be part, of the, part of the solution, not the problem. But for every one of those people that I know, I know a thousand other people who just don't want to be bothered, who will on the surface at a cocktail party, sure, they'll talk about climate change and they'll rattle off statistics and, well, I don't know, whatever's been the main climate story on the main media networks, sure, they'll know a little bit about that, but frankly, they don't care. And for a place like New Mexico, which has been a bellwether for climate change forever and is only going to continue to be more so because it's, we're in a very, very fragile ecosystem here, um, it translates for every one person doing the right thing, there's one of me to counter them. And I'm not saying I'm terrible in terms of climate change person, but I do some things and then I don't do others. I drove 12,000 miles since July. Okay, that's hard to justify. I'm about to fly to Mexico. That's hard to justify. I might fly to Albania in May. That's hard to justify. If you're a climate person and you're really out there talking about this, it's hard to justify these things. 12,000 miles since July. 25 states. Uh-uh. My carbon footprint is like Sasquatch. It's big. But here's the other thing. is I live in a place like New Mexico, and there's plenty of people here, and I have friends all over the country who are this way, where it's like, look— you know, don't take a shower every day because the water shortage here is a really big deal. So why would you do that? Oh, because I have to, you know, that's just something I do. I have to have my shower. I know people here in town that take three or four showers a day, long, hot showers a day. And their, their response to me is, oh, there's plenty of water. There's never been a water problem here. There never will be. There's more water than we can possibly use. And my little you, taking a shower has no impact whatsoever. So for every person I know that's doing a good idea or at least looking at this problem and saying, okay, what can I do as an individual? There are a thousand people who just go, I just don't care. I don't want to be bothered. I don't want to, I don't want to change my life. This is the lifestyle. I want to take a shower. I want to run my washing machine every day. I'm going to have three refrigerators instead of one. All of these things, no one cares. And I think that's really it. Until you go outside and it's so hot that you need a suit to keep you warm in the sunlight. Or when you go outside and you're like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm only at 2,000 feet elevation, but I'm having a hard time breathing because the oxygen is, in, is so polluted. I don't, and by that time, it's way too late. I don't think anything's really going to change. And based on this last uh, climate summit in Glasgow, from the political side, no one gives a shit. They're just not, there's no vested interest for them. Oil and gas, the auto industry, they're still the most powerful lobbies in the world. They're not going anywhere. They're not changing. And now the thing is, it doesn't matter what they do and how bad it is because no one gets in trouble anymore for anything. And so if you're climate, if you work for the oil and gas companies and you've been lying about this stuff since the 70s and covering up and doing all kinds of horrible things, no one cares anymore because everyone's just glued to the internet, wants their life back, dealing with COVID, doesn't matter. So I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's a way to salvage this. Maybe Greta and I will sail to the South Pacific. Doubtful, but possible. I'm not ruling anything out. I don't know. Don't have good updates for you. Point number five, I do have a good update for you. It's about my shifter site. Um, we're in the process of upgrading my shifter site. And I just did a film about this, which I'm going to release either today or tomorrow. And basically, it's been a while since the site's really seen any love. Uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to mention, though. So I'm doing, I'm built, rebuilding my shifter site, not really for myself. I don't really have any vested interest in selling myself as an individual. I don't sell photography. I don't do assignments anymore. I have no interest in being a photographer. I don't really want to sell you on anything. But there are so many people that reached out to me over the past couple of years and this has been growing and growing and growing, and I get more and more and more emails about this every week, which is, I don't want to do Facebook and Instagram anymore, but how do I create a community online where I can still share my work? So I'm building Shifter, rebuilding Shifter with the help of Charlene and Fleming, and we are going to re do a redesign. 
I don't really know exactly what any of this is going to look like yet. And there are going to be some additions to the site and some subtractions to the site. But the general gist is how to build a community and how to do so with your own algorithm and not by giving your work to someone else's algorithm like Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and Instagram. And so <clears throat> this is not just me saying this. I have seen several pretty remarkable reports in the past couple of months um, from agencies that go out and do deep dives in the creative industry. And, and really the, the takeaway is with social networks in marketing, you are going to pay more for less return moving forward. So every year you're gonna pay more to do, do the dance in social and you're gonna have diminishing returns. And everybody from the biggest companies in the world down to the individual are gonna suffer from that same thing. So if you're not jumping ship now, just know it's gonna get harder and the rats on board are gonna be fighting over the same scraps and there's more rats and less scraps. So you might as well do this now. So I don't have a stake in the game. I'm not trying to sell you, con you. I'm not trying to build a big following. I never did SEO on my site ever. I just post and I just leave it there. And if someone reads it, great. And if they don't, I've never cared. But now I have to care a little bit because if I'm going to build this as a sample, I need to do so in a way that you can then adopt or say, I like this part of what he did. I don't like this other part, but I'm going to take this one part and I'm going to utilize that. So things like a subscription service, a newsletter, I'm going to have a Discord server. I'm going to have a Patreon page. I've never wanted one of those. They rub me the wrong way. They're like nails on a chalkboard, people asking strangers for money for work that most of the time has no relevance or bearing to anyone else. It's kind of a weird, selfish thing that I've always looked. But a million people I know have Patreon sites. I need to know how it works. So I'm going to have a print arm on the site where I'm going to redesign my essay magazine uh, by using MagCloud Digest. And I'm going to sell those through the site. Again, not, I don't care how many people buy them. I just need a transactional aspect of my site as part of the pie because the site has to be multi-purpose. I have to be able to write and blog. I need to be able to show my photography. I need to be able to sell something. I need to be able to accumulate revenue through something like Patreon. And I then need to consolidate and simplify the rest of the site so that whatever I'm posting is just going to fall into one category instead of six or seven different tabs. So if I'm doing a dispatches, if I'm doing an adventure, a bike life, a line post, or a film, or a book review, it's all going to be under the same tab. I don't think people are really searching tab by tab. And so I want to clean up and simplify the look of the site. I need to start practicing the SEO portion. It's a pain in the ass. Anybody who's done SEO knows this. But I need to do it because now I need to be able to see how many people I can get to the site. And, and remember this. When you're doing a site like this and you're, and you're shifting away from something like social, this is incredibly slow. And it's, and it's tedious. And you're building one actual real connection at a time as opposed to social where you can boost your following you can buy you can do paid social versus organic and that's a whole nother game and nowadays boy if you're not doing paid social good luck trying to, to survive on organic social because the the algorithms of those platforms they're going to always favor the people who are paying you can you can quote unquote boost your following by buying following, and people still are do not want to acknowledge that's happening. It's happening all the time across the board. It's fake and phony and awful. That's why they don't want to acknowledge that. So if you're going to go out on your own and do this, just know that it's going to take time and it's tedious and slow. But you're building one at a time instead of building bots and strangers. Okay. The other thing that you need to know, and this is the last thing I'm going to say about it, is if you don't know how to do photography or you haven't figured out that you have something to say, then don't even bother doing this. Don't try yet. Wait until you've figured out how to do photography at a level that's interesting to other people and not just a bunch of online geek strangers who don't know what they're talking about. So if you don't have something to say, then don't try to do this because I run into this all the time. People reach out, hey, I'm doing this work and I can't believe I don't have more traction and I don't have any following and can you, can you feature me? Can I do a blog post on your site? Can I do this and that? And you look at the work and you're like, you haven't started yet. This photography is, is if we're on a scale of A to F like we would be in school, you're at the D minus level because you just haven't put the time in and learned anything. You've never studied photography. You've never practiced. You don't have a mentor. You've never taken a class. You've never done a workshop. You've never studied photo history. You don't know context. You don't know any of that stuff, but you're thinking that you're good enough to have a following or an audience. And that's really just an obnoxious aspect of modern culture and the internet 
that's provided us with this idea that everybody's good and everybody deserves a following. And I just don't see it that way. It's just now you can do really something really dumb and build a huge following and just kill it. I see that all the time. In fact, I've known a few people personally who have done that, who just want, like I knew a guy who spoke, was a, was a kid from a non- uh, Asian dialect or language speaking country who actually learned how to speak Mandarin. And he would do these idiotic YouTube films where he would just speak in Mandarin and he had millions of followers. He made, he's literally like cashed out and moved on and retired. And he's like 25 years old because it was such a novelty for the Chinese to see this young kid speaking fluent Mandarin that they were like, Oh my God, that's hilarious. And the kid had a sense of humor. He never took himself too seriously. And he was like, I'm going to do, go out and do really dumb skits where I'm speaking this language. And millions of people watched those films, and they loved it. I met him actually in Asia when he was doing this, and I was like, holy cow. He had power even back then. He had total power over the brands and the people who were trying to manipulate him into doing things for them. He was like, nope. And everything was done on his terms because he shifted that balance of power most photographers do not have that ability. They cannot control the entire narrative because the clients are the ones with the funding. There's very few people who can. There used to be more. There's less now. And so just realize, make sure you have something to say. R know this is going to take a long time. The newsletter is critical. Having a real human being at the end of that, not a bot, not a stranger. And build your own little community. And it's a lot of fun. Um, oh, I guess there's one more thing I should say. So I follow someone who has a sizable community. Um, I'm sure this person is on social media. I do not want to know them on social media because it will be fake and phony like everyone else. But this person, what, what, what they put out in their mainstream site, I love. I stop what I'm doing. I look at it. Sometimes I like it. Sometimes I don't. But I always look because I, this person has produced consistent results for a long time. But also slipped up recently by mentioning something by using the word responsibility and the responsibility was directed at the community that's connected to this person and this person sees the idea that you once you build a community you have to be in contact with the people that you're milking to be part of your community and let's face it that's what you're doing is you're milking them for their time and their money and their energy and their numbers and then you're turning around and then using those numbers to lure other people so that you can increase your revenue. That's what's happening here, in case no one's informed you. That's how it works. It's, a, it's kind of a, think of the remora fish stuck to the side of the great white. That's what a lot of us are. So if that is the way you're looking at this, when this person used that word responsibility, I was like, they're in trouble. Because this won't last. It's only going to be a couple of years, and then this person is going to disappear or is going to just drop off the face of the earth and stop posting. Because if you're looking at communicating with your audience as being a, quote, responsibility, then your head's in the wrong space because that's a, that's a short play, not a long play. You should be thrilled about engaging with the people that are in your community because you've taken the time to build the right kind of people into your community. Not strangers, not haters, not geeks who are there for one reason, waiting for you to talk about a piece of camera equipment. That's not interesting. You should be, when I see the names pop up on my site, who are people who are leaving comments, and many times, and that is a clunky process, by the way, which is why the Discord server is going to come on. The YouTube comments are the same. A lot of times with my site, when I see the names of the comments, these are people I've known for years. These are people I've met in person. These are people sometimes where... I will do an event in Europe or Canada or wherever, and they will come to see me and we get to hang out. That's the difference between a social, oh my God, I got to deal with these people, and oh, I know this guy. We've been communicating for a long time online. That's a real community versus that fake social, I'm mining you, but I'm, we're all playing along with the fact that I'm mining you, and I'm acting like I'm not mining you, but I am, and I know that you know I am, and I'm doing it anyway. That's online life. That's the phoniness that we got to get away from. Point number six Birding. I said it. I officially said it. Birding. Um, highlight of the week for me, birding, northern flicker. I saw a northern flicker. I think it was a female. It had that red slash on the cheek, which is an absolutely gorgeous bird. It kind of surprised me. I was on a hike by myself, probably a mile from the house, and uh, I saw this flash, this white rump flash, sizable bird. And I was like, huh. And then I happened to be, of course, have my binoculars now around my neck. And I filled the frame with this thing. And I was like, 
that is a gorgeous bird. And then I saw the spots on the tail and I was like, I think that's a woodpecker. So again, I'm a novice birder here. I think the Northern Flicker is a version of a woodpecker. Uh, gorgeous, gorgeous bird. That's the highlight of my week. I also did see some stellar jays. And if, you've, if you're looking for a cool design and a what I would call a Fuji Velvia level of saturation on the feather, contrast and saturation, the Stellar's jay is a really gorgeous bird with a pointed head. It's very regal looking um, and was really ticked off at me. I was up at about 11,000 feet and uh, was hiking alone on the snow up to the top of the Sangre de Cristos, and I heard this thing just squawking at me, and I looked up, and there it was, a Stellar's Jay. That's a beautiful bird. I've seen a lot of, like, common stuff over the past week. Lots of ravens, some crows, um, juniper titmouse, um, robins, bluebirds, that kind of thing, uh, blue jays, regular blue jays, like our pinion jays, but the Stellar's Jay and the Northern Flicker. So if you haven't seen what the Northern Flicker is, look it up. Um, birding is now going to turn into a book for me. And I've already decided what I'm going to do. There's actually two books that I'm working on about birding. Um, and these are primarily f ways for me to work on graphic design. This is not me saying I'm a great birding photographer. I'm not. And 99% of the time, I can't identify what I'm looking at, even with things like the, the bird. Um, Cornell University has an amazing uh, bird resource center. I've got a bird ID. I've got all these apps on my phone. I still can't half the time. I see it. I look at it. I go, okay, I remember what it looked like. And then I open those and I cannot find it. And I go, I'm an idiot and I'm moving on. But I'm going to do a book. Uh, about birding in New Mexico. That's going to be kind of a weird take on birding that I'm working on. And then I'm working on another about the locations in which I saw these birds. And that's going to be another. And that's basically, again, these are just exercises. This is me going to the gym without the puffy pants and fanny pack and the 10 pounds of boiled chicken. This is just me going and working out graphic design muscles that are atrophied and weak to begin with. And that's really what good bookmaking is about, is just practicing and building and practicing and building. I am in no way, shape, or form putting these books out into the world, thinking I'm good enough to make a book like this to sell. That's an arrogant, arrogant thing that you're going to immediately add water and make a book and then expect strangers around the world to buy this from you. That's a bit, that's a bit obnoxious. That's sort of the classic model of photo book mentality, which is I'm really good. And I'm amazing, and I'm going to do an artist-driven book, and that people are going to love me and buy this. And then you spend $30,000 and get a book and sell 12. And then you go, oh, my God, I'm broke, and I'm never going to see this money back. That's, that's probably the most common thing that I see, although there are ways to remedy that. Even if that is you, all is not lost. Definitely ways of utilizing that book that have nothing to do with selling it to strangers. So don't, don't give up hope. But I'm just doing this again as practice. Will I make this publicly available? No. Will I print a single copy for myself? Yep. Maybe even a second one if I learn some things along the way. That's where I'm at with birding. Uh, let's see. Point number seven. I'm going to skip seven, and I'm going to go straight to eight. So I have a friend who's an astronomer, and I went to his house, and he had two telescopes in the driveway. And I was like, I want to do this. He said, okay, come over on this night at this time when there's no moon pitch black, freezing cold, and I'm going to show you some things. And we did. Now, he has this telescope, two of them, with cameras attached, and not SLRs or DSLRs or mirrorless, but like literally cameras designed for going on telescopes. And then what he does is he stacks those images. He'll do like five to 10 second exposures, one after the other of the same scene, and the, and the telescope is moving, making micro movements so that everything remains tack sharp. And it's all I can say is, it is incredible what's out there. Now, we looked at things through the telescope. Saturn was visible. Jupiter was visible. You could see the moons of Jupiter. That was cool. You could see the rings on Saturn very clearly. That's always a cool thing to see. We looked at a few other things, but it wasn't until we went inside and were stacking up these exposures where you looked and said, the Andromeda galaxy, absolutely mind-blowingly, just you're looking at it thinking that can't possibly be real. It cannot be real. The Orion Nebula, same thing. You're looking at it like that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life, and it's right there. And even with a pair of binoculars, it's amazing what you can see. Not like you can see the detail that we did on stacking those frames, but I was amazed. The other thing I was amazed at is looking at the telescope and the amount of connections and cables and little devices that have to be assembled on the telescope that all have to be working in tandem 
then hardwired into something that's running into his house where his, his little um, his PC laptop device is there running this whole thing from inside the house. I was amazed that anyone, anyone had the capability of setting that up. It is the most complicated thing. I had a telescope that my father bought. I had it for 15 years and I never looked at it. I never even looked through it. All I was lacking was an eyepiece and I couldn't pull it together in 15 years to buy an eyepiece. It sat and then my wife sold it at a yard sale. And I was like, oh, talk about a failure. And it, you know, my father never looked at it either. He bought it, he bought all the apparatus, which it was like an exercise, piece of exercise equipment to him. He bought every piece of exercise equipment and then never used it and then sold it and then got fatter. That was my dad's workout plan. Don't work out, get fat, eat all the wrong food. It worked for him until he popped at 68. Stargazing, if you haven't done it, do it. Okay, point number nine. I want to talk about Rivian and Tesla. Now, apparently Tesla is the second least reliable auto brand in the world, followed only by Lincoln. Lincoln has a worse record. Um, the top three, Lexus, number one, Mazda, number two, Toyota, number three. I want to say Honda, number four. Um, no surprise there. Um, Toyota and Mazda up at the top and um, Tesla at the bottom. Not, not, not good. But still, a company that you look at and say, no one else is doing this to this level. Rivian's coming along. Rivian's interesting. They've only produced, I think, a few hundred vehicles, but they look pretty amazing. Hopefully, at some point, they'll make a model that, the, that a modest human being can afford, and hopefully, there'll be a charging network. But I don't think electric cars are really going to solve us, uh, save us. They're not going to solve the problem. I think they're interesting and something that will help, but I don't think I'll be dead before this really has any sort of effect. I think public transport would have been a far better idea. Uh, but we would have needed to start that decades ago. And again, oil and gas and auto is making sure that that's not happening. And um, when you can just buy politicians around the country, hence, we don't really have a whole lot of public public transit. And if you've ever tried to take Amtrak in the last decade and ever really tried to do like an actual trip, it's almost impossible and often three to four times the price of actually flying. So we don't really have a system here in, in, the, in America. So I look at these companies like Rivian and Tesla and I go, you know what? Good on you. This is, we need people who are thinking differently, pushing the boundaries, taking chances, trying things, trying to upset the apple cart, right? We need this. That's, I love that entrepreneurial attitude, spirit. I love people who are out saying, I'm going to do this. I don't care what people are saying or how many people are going to try to block me or what issues I have. I'm going to do this. And if you look at what Musk has done with the space program um, and the, the Tesla program, pretty amazing, Rivian as well. But the thing is, I, I still think we are leaving the major player on the, on the table, and that is the bicycle. And again, I've talked about this a thousand times, but every time someone writes me and says, hey, you mentioned bicycles, and I finally dug mine out of the shed and put air in the tires. I hadn't ridden it in 20 years, but man, I started riding it, and I forgot how much fun it was, and I've been running errands on it, and it sure saves a lot of gas, and I'm starting to feel better every time I mention this. Someone writes me and says, dude, you just reminded me to get my bike out. And that's why I'm mentioning it again. The bicycle is already here. It does not need any new developments. It does not need uh, massive funding from anywhere. We already have the bicycle. It's completely functional in the form it is. What we don't have is an infrastructure around bicycles. And again, there's a lot of people actively working against this. And we have the mentality of a lot of Americans who are against it to begin with because the bicycle has now, is now seen as a socialist revolutionary tool instead of just being a bicycle that's a blast to ride. That's pretty simple and doesn't require fuel and you know makes you healthier. You can save on your fuel costs. You can save on your health care. You can have a lot of fun. But again, we have uh, a horrible system here in America. We have huge distances. We have unsafe roads. And we have an obese population. Our population is massive. We are overweight on scale beyond anyone else on the, on the planet. And that's a huge part of it. So a lot of times when I mention bicycles to people, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. that those terms are coming from people who are severely out of shape, severely overweight, smokers, drinkers, who just cannot get it together to get on a bike because even leaving their neighborhood is going to be physically a real obstacle and hurdle. So we do have legitimate reasons why this is going to be a challenge. What we need to overcome is the apathy and also the corruption at the political level and the insurance level of politicians when lobby groups, oil and gas, auto saying, look, don't put bike lanes in. No, 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 forget about it. Let's just widen the road. 
put in sidewalks, make it impossible for people to ride bikes, and then they're stuck in their cars. Automobile-dependent sprawl is the number one design structure that's being implemented across the United States. Every kind of city, small, medium, and large, auto-dependent sprawl. No bike lanes, sidewalks, and curbs, meaning if you're riding on the road and you've got a hard curb to your right, you're stuck, it's dangerous, drivers are pissed off, fuel costs are expensive, they're going to be coming by you at six inches off your handlebars at 100 miles an hour, you got the rednecks rolling coal on you, there's a million things. But the bike is already here. And the bike is a blast. And it's fun. And you don't have to get rid of your car. You don't have to. The bike is a supplemental tool that you just look at and say, okay, if this is less than five miles and I've got the time. And also we need employers to look and say, look, I'm going to give you an incentive. Places like San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, employers do often have incentives for people to ride. They'll have showers at the office where you can come in, ride your bike. I would love, every time I'd go to the Blurb office, we had two floors of a building, a third floor and the sixth floor. I'd go up to the sixth floor. There'd be bikes. Um, the people who were cyclists that commuted in would put their bikes all in this one room. And, you know, there was never a ton, but it was nice to walk in there and see these people who were like rain, snow, sun, hail, wind, they were commuting on bike. And that's awesome. And I realize again, that's not everybody, you know, is my sister going to do that? My, my sister's like, I got to do my hair. I got to do my hair. That's going to be a challenge. But unless we adapt and say, look, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. We're in big trouble. The bike, the bike, the bike. Okay. Second to last point. Um, I want to apologize to the people of Svalbard, which is in Norway, I believe. I want to apologize to the people of Sweden. And I want to apologize to even the people of Pakistan. Pakistan. I want to apologize. Svalbard in particular, which is in the Norwegian Arctic, if I have my geography right. I apologize because the YouTube community has found you. And the YouTube community is coming. And they are coming with their drones and they're coming with their knit hats, and they're coming with their backlit bodies and thongs standing in rivers, and they are coming because they found a way to con their following into thinking that living in these places is idyllic and dreamlike, and they're all zen and connected to Mother Earth, and they're coming by the dozen. And when they come, they will buy properties, and they will build facades, and they will ruin your country. I guarantee it. Just ask Iceland. How many people, how many hipsters with drones are taking over that country and making films and just basically mining Iceland, mining it, turning around, dumping the tailings at the airport lounge and getting on their planes and flying away. So Svalbard, for whatever reason, is now the hot ticket on YouTube with the hipster YouTubers. I'm buying a house in northern Sweden and I've become completely zen and I'm going to live here in the winter and take pictures of myself backlit in the windows in this house as I quote Walt Whitman and, and Thoreau, and I'm going to make it, and then as soon as I get a chance, I'm going to be in a thong at some point somewhere selling this idea. It is amazing to watch this happen. It went from Iceland. Iceland was the like flavor of choice until it just got smoked by YouTube. That Now it's over. Now Iceland is probably just reeling. Like if Seeing people with a drone at the airport, that should be immediate arrest, immediate arrest and incarceration. Now it's Svalbard and Sweden and other parts of Norway and even Pakistan. They're selling this idea. Like someone's going to go to Afghanistan and do this. I guarantee it. Once YouTubers find Afghanistan, if the local population doesn't like the Taliban, just wait till the YouTubers show up. Because if you have a choice between YouTube and Taliban, I'd probably take Taliban. Because these YouTubers are going to turn that place inside out. The Taliban are going to give up. They're just going to say, look, you can, you can take it back because we don't want it. The YouTubers are here. So it's happening. I apologize, Svalbard. I think it might be too late for you. You may want to try to find a place on the mainland and just turn over the island and uh, hope for the best. Last point, Kawasaki KLR650 Adventure. Yeah, I've been lurking on that site too. This is a bike I've always wanted the Kawasaki KLR650, which is redesigned for 2022. This is the apocalypse bike. They've been making this bike for decades, kind of like my TW, but it's a 650, not a 200. The T-Dub is not a bike you're going to take out on the highway. It's just too slow and there's no fairing. And when you're doing 50 with no fairing and there's a wind, it literally will blow your head from side to side, regardless of what, if you're trying to keep your head straight, if the wind hits, it literally blows your head down 
one side or the other, and it feels like someone just has a back a hold of the back of your collar and is pulling you backwards. The wind is so bad at 50 miles an hour. The KLR 650 is a legitimate dual sport adventure bike that you could ride from Alaska to Patagonia, right? People have done that many times on this bike. They've done trips all over the world, redesigned. It looks absolutely fantastic. It's, it's super functional, super practical, easy to repair pretty much anywhere. There's Kawasaki dealers all over, as opposed to some of the other bikes like the Beamers and the KTMs, which can be a little bit more difficult to get fixed. Um, and it is like the most badass bike. And the adventure, particular adventure model comes with some luggage on the back and stuff. That's not essential to get that bike, that package, but it would be nice. Comes with the luggage, also comes with the fairing guards and also USB ports and kind of small stuff like that. But I'm lusting over that bike. I'm lusting over it. I sat on this bike two years ago and I almost bought it, but I didn't. And now I'm basically not going on the Kawasaki side and I'm giving myself time to get away from it. So that hopefully that buyers, that, that, that pull of wanting to be a buyer goes away because it's stupid for me to buy that bike. It's dangerous. I don't need it. I could, I should save the money. There's a million things. I'm not going to buy the bike telling you right now. I'm not buying that bike today, but it's out there. And the KLR, it's got a six gallon tank. I mean, I could put a little, put my tent on the back and ride the New Mexico back road discovery route and just go out to the far reaches, the far places on that bike, be a blast. I'm not buying it. I'm not going to buy that. I'm just leaving you with that. So I appreciate you tuning in to, for what it's worth. Um, a busy Monday here. It's 10 o'clock New Mexico time. I've got to leave the house in an hour. I've got to upload more films. I've got three phone calls. I've got a lunch meeting. And, um, you know, typical Monday, people. And I will be back. I appreciate you tuning in. And um, good luck with everything out there. Keep your head up. Be patient. And we will get through this.